passages. Uh, one is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53. The main one that we're going to be looking at is John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. But we will also look uh, and read from John 17, verse 6. Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12, John 6, verses 35 through 40, and John 17, verse 6. Hear the word of God. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. and He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up in the last, on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Turning now over to John chapter 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's join in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do come humbly before you this night. Your word is so vast in its teaching. And as we consider it tonight, we do pray that you would focus our hearts and our minds upon those eternal truths that are revealed to us concerning the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. We ask our Father that you would enlighten us by the power of your spirit for we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We are in uh, tonight the second in a series of four, as Pastor Rob explained this morning, 
using John Flavel's uh, series of sermons entitled The Fountain of Life. I am going to be preaching tonight uh, on texts that are dealt with in John Flavel's sermon entitled Opens the Covenant of Redemption Betwixt the Father and the Redeemer. John Flavel preached this sermon on Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, verse that we just read. It's not my intention tonight at all to follow uh, or to preach John Flavel's sermon. I, uh, I gave a consideration, but uh, uh, I wouldn't dare uh, try to do that. But I want to uh, speak, uh, preach to you tonight concerning the wonderful covenant of redemption between the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we want to look then at uh, this verse that is uh, th- these verses primarily tonight at John uh, chapter 6. In John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus uh, is speaking concerning those who are listening to him, and he says that you do, I have uh, spoken to you, that he, he says, I am the bread of life, uh, and whoever uh, believes in me shall never thirst. Uh, the one who believes will not hunger, the, and whoever believes will never thirst. But he says, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And so the Lord then goes to say, goes on to say that all that the Father has given me will come to me. And so these words point us to uh, an agreement that was made between the Father and the Son and the gift of the Father to the Son of those who will and do believe in him. And the Lord Jesus finds comfort in the knowledge that the Father has given him this gift in the midst of the lack of belief among many who heard him. If you were to begin to build a house, you would first come up with a plan as to what kind of house you would want to build. You might decide to build a salt box, a ranch, a gambrel, or some other type of house. And you might hire an architect. And there would be plenty of thought and planning that would go into the number of bedrooms that you would have in your house number of bathrooms, and a host of many other decisions that would have to be made as you were planning to begin the project of building a house. It is inconceivable for us to think of the eternal God to begin to create the world without a plan. And what we are going to consider tonight is the plan of the triune God in creating 
the world, mankind, and redeeming mankind. Sinclair Ferguson, in an article that he wrote in um, Table Talk magazine, said this. To understand scripture, we need to understand this riddle. The future comes before the past. He continues, simply put, it means that the story of the Lord Jesus, his person and work, is not a divine afterthought, a heavenly plan B, hurriedly scrambled together when plan A went horribly wrong in Eden. No, the coming of Christ was in the plan before the fall. God from all eternity planned to redeem a people for himself, a people whom he had chosen before the foundation, before creation. He had a plan to do this. Martin Lloyd-Jones said these words. He says, the three persons of the Trinity met in conference and Lloyd-Jones uh, has in parentheses uh, when he uses this, he says, I speak with reverence. The three persons of the Trinity met in conference and planned it. Let us get rid forever of the idea that salvation was an afterthought in the mind of God. It is not a thought that came to God after man had fallen into sin, but before the three blessed persons of the Trinity divided up the work the Father planned and the Son put it into operation and the Holy Spirit applies it, end of quote. So our text this evening is one that cannot be understood without understanding this great truth. The salvation of the elect was decided upon and provided for by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in a covenant of redemption before the world was created. I want to repeat that. The salvation of the elect was decided upon and provided for by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in a covenant of redemption before the world was created. And our text in John chapter 6 speaks and refers to and cannot really be understood apart from that covenant. And the first thing that we see in this John chapter 6 is this. There is a fixed number of men and women chosen by God the Father. There is a fixed number of men and women chosen by God the Father who are given by the Father to the Son as his inheritance. There is a fixed number of men and women chosen by God the Father and given by God the Father 
to the Son as his inheritance. Jesus said in verse 37, All that the Father gives me. Speaking of a group of elect people chosen by God the Father before the foundation of the world. These are those whom the Father chose. These are those who are loved from all eternity. God so loved the world. Love caused God to choose a number of men and women who are in a state of sin and misery and guilt and to bring them salvation. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me, referring to this number. There are many places throughout the Gospel of John especially where we find this kind of language. For example, in John 17, 2, Jesus says, You have given him authority, speaking of himself, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. These that the Father had given to the Son, the Son now speaks of as having been given authority to grant eternal life to those persons. John 17, 6, the verse that we read, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They belong to God the Father. And Jesus here says that these people whom the Father had chosen out of their sin and their misery to bring salvation to them and to give them glory, that these had been given to the Son. Another passage John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than them all. The Father's power is such that no enemy can succeed, no enemy can snatch God's chosen ones from the hand of of the Father. Ephesians chapter 1, a wonderful chapter that just speaks about the Father's choosing us. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. The Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, we read uh, and we confess the very uh, words that I'm about to read this morning when we were in worship. And these are some of the most beautiful words that I think that have ever been written. 
words concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is these words, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. End of quote. What beautiful words. The Lord, God the Father, ordained the Lord Jesus Christ to be the one who would be the mediator between God and man, and he gave him from all eternity, before the world was created, he gave him a people who would in time be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. What a wonderful truth. That is the first thing, that there are a fixed number of men and women who are chosen by God the Father and given by God the Father to the Son as his inheritance. The second thing that I'd like for us to notice from this passage is this. God's grace that he gives to the elect cannot be denied or thwarted. God's grace that he gives to the elect cannot be denied or thwarted. We see this in the words that Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. In the covenant of redemption made between the persons of the Trinity before the foundation of the world, all the persons of the Trinity were involved. The Father chose a people. The Son would implement redemption for those whom the Father chose. And the Spirit would apply that which the Son accomplishes. And the Spirit would quicken and renew those whom the Father calls. And so it is that the Spirit's role, in addition to upholding the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, in uh, creating from the human nature of Mary, creating from her nature the nature of the Son of God, the Incarnation, the Holy Spirit, came upon Mary and did that. The Holy Spirit was active in upholding and guiding and strengthening the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his ministry. And it is the Holy Spirit who, in addition to strengthening and helping the Lord Jesus in his time of humiliation, It is the Holy Spirit who, in his glorification now, applies that work which he accomplished in the hearts of of his elect people. So those who are given by the Father to the Son will most certainly come to the Son in faith and trust. 
All those whom God has predestined unto life, our confession says, and the, those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit, being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, we are then enabled to believe and to answer that call and to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the work of the Spirit. And it is why it is the case that it is impossible that one of those chosen by the Father would fail to come to know Jesus Christ, to be drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit, and enabled to answer the call of the Spirit. So the call of God involves, as we see in our text, two things. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. First, there is looking on the Son. And so it is that the Lord Jesus Christ is preached and magnified in the preaching of the gospel. It is Jesus Christ that is held forth to you even this very night as the one in whom you must know and trust for the forgiveness of your sins. And so look upon the Son. Look upon him in his suffering on the cross for you. Look upon him in his, in his love in laying down his life for your salvation. Look upon the Son as he is glorified and intercedes and prays for you in heaven. And secondly, believe in him. Trust in him. Cast yourself upon him and know his love. These are the things that the Holy Spirit does in the hearts of those whom he calls. And this is called the covenant of grace. It is the covenant of grace. The Lord uh, it offers to men and women and children salvation and life through faith in Jesus Christ. He requires of you that you trust in Christ, that you place your confidence in him alone, nothing in yourself. And he promises to give you his Holy Spirit. You may say, I, I, I'm a failure in this. I can't live the Christian life. I don't know how to do this. I've tried to do it many times. and I fail miserably. I think you could probably say that's the testimony of everyone who has been called by God, that we sense greatly our own inability, our own weakness, and all of our attempts to follow after Christ. And again and again, we fall on our face. But what is the call to you tonight? Not to look to yourself. Not to look to your own frailty and your failings. But to look upon the Son and to believe that he has done for you what you yourself cannot do. This is what God offers to you in the covenant of grace. And the wonderful truth is, no matter what your past, 
no matter what you may feel are the obstacles, how deeply unlovable you may feel yourself to be, Jesus says these words, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What wonderful words. Grasp a hold of those words. He who comes to me, I will never cast out. He is ready to receive all who trust in him. And so that is the second thing for us to consider, that God the Holy Spirit ensures that all those whom, who are given to the Son by the Father will most certainly, when they cry to him, when they look to him and trust in him, most certainly will be drawn by God the Holy Spirit and will be uh, the ones who experience salvation and find eternal life. And so we find then that, the, that God's grace toward the elect cannot be denied or thwarted. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. Thirdly, I'd like for us to see in this text that it is the, the, Christ has the assurance that this is the case. Notice verse 38, the use of the word for. He says this, and he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We heard this morning that Christ has dwelt from all eternity in eternal glory. And he left that glory, the manifestation of that glory behind, and he came down from heaven, not to do his own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He was sent by the Father to do the will of the Father. And it is the fact that Christ is, is doing that will, that the Father, doing that work that the Father had given him, that assures him that God will indeed give him those for whom he came. Christ is on a, a rescue mission, and he has come to accomplish the will of the Father for these ones who have been given to him, who are precious to him, and he is carrying out that will. His certainty is based upon his confidence that God the Father will honor the promise that he has made to him and that he will pay uh, in, in the payment of the debt of, of his people to the law, that, that as, he has, as he accomplishes that work for them, that the Father will reward him. John Flavel, in his sermon, puts these words in the mouth of the Father. He says, My son... Here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in their eternal ruin. What shall be done for these souls? And then he has uh, the son answering the father's question in this way. Oh, my father... Such is my love to and pity for them, that rather than they should perish eternally, 
I will be responsible for them as their surety. And I will bring in, um, I will be responsible for them as their surety, bring in all their debt bills, that I may see what they owe thee. At my hand you shall require it. I will rather choose to suffer wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. The Lord Jesus Christ, in the covenant of redemption, fulfills the requirement laid upon him by the Father that he would bear the iniquity of his people. All of their debt he takes upon himself. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology says this. He says, a surety, a surety is one who engages to become responsible for the legal obligations of another. In the covenant of redemption, Christ undertook to atone for the sins of his people by bearing the necessary punishment and to meet the demands of the law for them. So in the incarnation, Christ humbled himself and became a servant and became obedient to the law. And he did that, not for himself, but for you and me. In his obedience of the law, he fulfilled all that was required of those who belong to him. He came to pour out his soul to death and to be numbered among the transgressors, as Isaiah puts it. This is a figure when, when uh, uh, Isaiah speaks of, of dividing him a portion with the many. Uh, this is a figure for the, a conqueror who wins a battle. And the battle after the uh, war, the, after the battle is over, all the spoils of war lie before him, and the prisoners of war. And they are brought before him, and the conqueror takes the finest and the best of the spoils of war. So the prophet Isaiah speaks of the father saying to the son, about the son, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. And so the confidence of the Lord Jesus Christ that all who would come to him, uh, that, uh, that each and every one that was given to him by the Father would come to him, is based upon his confidence that the Father would fulfill his promise to him and give him as a reward of his sufferings all of the elect, those whom the Father had chosen. And this brings us to the final point, and that is that the covenant of redemption has as its goal not only that the elect's uh, salvation would be provided for through the work of Christ in acting as their surety and fulfilling all their obligations for them, but the covenant of redemption looks ahead to the restoration in glory. And so we read 
uh, in verses 38 and uh, uh, 39 and 40. He says, This is the will of him that sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so the Lord here looks ahead to the time when he will come again in glory. And the promise is that every single one of those whom the Father had given him will not only be saved in the sense that their sins are, 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 are taken care of by a surety, but that they are raised in glory with Christ on the day that he returns. I will raise him up on the last day. And so the final end or the goal of the covenant of redemption is a new heavens and a new earth and a glorified, a resurrected and glorified body of Christ united to him by the working of the Holy Spirit, giving faith and love and communion and fellowship with God and dwelling with him forever in that way. And so the covenant of redemption then provides for the coming of the one who is uh, to uh, come and fulfill the terms of that covenant and then receive as a reward for that, uh, that which the Father promised. Just a few things to consider in terms of uh, the practical outworking of this. And this is, uh, first of all, that the goal in all of the covenant of redemption is that God is glorified, that God is glorified in the work of redemption. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He said, in all this, God designed to accomplish the glory of the blessed Trinity in an exceeding degree. God had a design of glorifying himself from eternity to glorify each person in the Godhead, that the whole Trinity conjunctly and each person singly might be exceedingly glorified. And the work that was the appointed means of this was begun immediately after the fall and is carried on and finished at the end of the world when all this intended glory shall be fully accomplished. The glory of God is the great end and the of God's design in redemption, his own manifestation of his triune glory. And then also consider this, that your security as a believer rests in the work that has been accomplished for you by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the world was even uh, created, in that a covenant was made between the persons of the Trinity. And your redemption rests in that which Christ has made for you. Your security and confidence that you are redeemed rests not only in the promise of life 
made to you upon the exercise of faith, but it rests in this covenant of redemption made by the Father with Christ for your salvation. And that makes it secure. It makes it impossible for one who has been so redeemed to be lost. In the covenant of grace, we don't, uh, we don't so much question God's promise to us or his ability to carry it out, but we do often question our own defects of faith and obedience. And when we look at the covenant of redemption, the covenant made between the three persons of the Trinity, we realize that we are not one of the parties of that covenant. We are not a part of it. No part of it depends upon you. The parties are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. John Flavel says this, Happy were it if puzzled and perplexed Christians would turn their eyes from the defects that are in their obedience to the fullness and the completeness of Christ's obedience and see themselves completely in him, even when most lame and defective in themselves. All things that the Lord Jesus asks of the Father are the very things that the Father has promised him. Whatever he asks for, Flavel says this, whatever he asks for us is due to him as the wages of the hireling when the work is ended. The love of God for you, in addition, consider this, the love of God for you being very old, that is, before the foundation of the world, before the world was created, God set his love on you, and therefore it is free. It is not dependent upon anything that you do. He loved you. He eternally loved you and eternally loves you and he loves you so that he provided for you the Lord Jesus Christ and he has provided fully for your complete and perfect happiness. There is no excellency in you or good work that you could do that would ever cause God to love you more than he does. He has loved you with an eternal love, with the love of God from all eternity. You can't do anything to make him love you more. God so loved the world. Speaking not of every individual in the world, but the whole of the world, as opposed to merely the Jewish people. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for you. And that is the beauty and the wonder of the covenant of redemption. Your redemption 
and your salvation rests in something that is locked in to the eternal counsels of God. And we need to remember that when we are despairing and when we're doubting and when we're discouraged. With those things in mind, let us pray. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that from all eternity you have had, that you had a plan that you would redeem a people. And we thank you that each person, the triune God, has fulfilled that work and is fulfilling it even now. And we look forward to the great day when it will be made uh, full in the fullness of the revelation of your glory in the new heavens and the new earth when sin will be no more and we will dwell with you forever and ever. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.